Good morning. If you guys would turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 11, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. And so as you're turning there, just a a few things to keep in mind about the, the first three books of the Bible and so the one central theme for the book of Genesis is we, uh, one central theme that we see is there is a continual separation, a continual moving away from the intimate closeness that Adam and Eve had once experienced with God in the garden. And then in Exodus, we see that there is this theme of now moving back to God, for God takes his people and he redeems them out of Egypt and he is bringing them to be with him. And then the next book, the book of Leviticus, it remind, it, it alerts us and teaches us how we are to live in the midst of a holy God. And so what we see throughout these three books is that uh, ever since the fall, God has been about bringing his people back into fellowship with him to enjoy his presence. And so in the book of Genesis, we have two parts. The first part is verse, uh, books 11 through, or 1 through 11. And in the first part, it focuses on God and the whole world. And that's where we're going to find ourselves today at the tail end of that first part. So Genesis 11, verses 1, excuse me, 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east... They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. For they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord had said, Behold... They are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your word is profitable for teaching and rebuke and correction and training and righteousness. Father, we thank you that uh, you are the one who enables us to understand your word. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and uh, please apply the truths from this passage this morning into our lives. But we thank you that you are mindful of us, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So what is the worst thing that could happen to you? This is a question that I asked the youth group a couple of weeks ago, and it's a question that uh, I, I asked it for a reason, because it can be answered in a couple of different ways, depending on how deep we kind of want to go, because it, it gets at something that we're not really always comfortable talking about which is our fears. And so for us here, the way we might, we might be able to answer this question or a couple ways we might go about that is by saying the worst thing that could happen to me would be getting cancer or the worst thing that would happen to me would be losing my job or losing my retirement uh, or never being able to actually save enough money for retirement 
Or maybe the worst thing that could happen to me was failing this class or failing um, some aspect of, of school so that I would never be able to, um, to actually pass and get on to the next grade. These are some of the worst things that could happen, right? What was really interesting is the answer I got from some, some of the guys in the youth group. And they said that the worst thing that could happen would be to be abandoned. This sort of said this culmination of being forgotten, being deliberately ignored, and being all alone and uncared for. This is the worst thing that could happen to them. And if we're, if we're honest if we, with ourselves, this is the worst thing that could happen to all of us. This is something that um, actually has driven us, this fear of abandonment and being alone, to do maybe some pretty foolish things in order to try to fit in with the world or fit in with a group of people. And again, it is, it is not wrong to have this fear because, again, we were never created to be abandoned. We were never created to be alienated or alone. In fact, we were created to be in a perfect, loving relationship with our God and with one another. But the thing is, it's, it's how we act on our fears that cause pain to ourselves and to others. And so in this passage, we are going to see the greatest problem that occurs when our fears end up getting the best of us. We see fallen humanity, they come together and they decide to build themselves a city to dwell in. But they do so out of fear of being forgotten and out of fear of being scattered over the face of the earth. This is, in fact, in direct opposition to the commands given to them by God. And so, What we will see this morning is that our God is committed to bringing sinful humanity back into his presence. And so this text shows us that because God is committed to our redemption, that we must live thankful lives. And we will see that we do this by using our gifts to glorify his name, trusting in his wise plan even in the midst of our fear, and then going out into the world with the kingdom. And so our first point is because... God, our God is committed to our redemption. We must use our gifts to glorify his name. And so if we were to uh, look at the first verse of this, of this chapter, we, come across, we immediately come across a problem. Because if we were reading this from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, we would come to Genesis chapter 10. And in Genesis chapter 10, Moses records for us how Noah and his descendants had already spread out over the earth. He actually says that each of their clans already had their own language and they already spoke, uh, they already had their own words. Then we come to the next chapter and we see now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Whoa, there, there seems to be a contradiction here, right? What are we supposed to do with this? But before we, we kind of jump head first into claiming that you know the Bible has error in it, let's take a step back and think. Um, in fact, what one of my professors has said at school is that in Hebrew narrative and the way things were written, there's often this thing that occurs where a summary of an event or an, a, an effect of an event will be told and then the cause of that event will come next. And we see that here. This is what we, we see. People were spread out across the earth, but we were never really told why. We were never informed as to why that happens. And then here we come in chapter 11. And again, this kind of fits in line with the whole story because we remember all of, all of these clans had descended from Noah. So it would only make sense that before they were spread out, that they all had one language, for they all came from the same man. 
And so the second thing that we see is that these are people who are on the move. They are migrating from the east, and they decided to settle in this plain. And um, it's not an insignificant detail as well that these people are on move uh, on the move from the east. For this carries some symbolism with it in the book of Genesis. Just think about it. We read of Adam and Eve who were um, kicked out, removed from the garden, out towards the east. There is a cherubim which now guards the east gate of the Garden of Eden. And in fact, um, Lot then separates from Abraham and he goes off to the east into Sodom. And so this has led a commentator to conclude that in the Genesis narratives, in the book of Genesis, when a man goes east, he is leaving the land of blessing and he is going to a land where the greatest of his hopes will turn to his ruin. And so this detail in the book would have queued up the original readers to, to know something is about to happen here. I must pay attention because there's something that is going to come. And, and we don't have to read too far before we encounter conflict. You see, in the next couple of verses, we read that mankind's desire was to build for themselves a city. And if we think of their situation... It makes total sense. They are settling in a plain. A plain is wide open. There is nothing to protect them from harm. And so they decide to build this city. Moses records for us, though, it's not just any city. It is one that has its tower, or uh, this large tower with its top in the heavens. And then in verse 4, we read that their purpose is very clear as to why they would do this. They want to make a name for themselves. They want their name to be glorified. They want their name to be remembered forever. And so we see that this problem of pride comes into focus because throughout Scripture we see that it is our Lord whose name is majestic in all the earth. It is his name who is to be glorified. His name is to be exalted. And these people are concerned with making a name for themselves. And think about this for a second as well. These were people who descended, who came from Noah. Noah, who had seen the Lord in his mighty power and flooding the earth and then also sustaining him in an ark for 40 days and 40 nights, him and his family, with a bunch of wild animals. They knew the power of the Lord. They would have heard these stories. Just think of all the stories that are told uh, to us from our family members of significant events that have occurred in their life. So they would know this. And yet in their arrogance, they are set on building up a name for themselves rather than for the Lord. And so again, we can see that this pride sort of stems from the fact that they had successfully created and, and made something. You see, what would have typically been used to build cities would be bricks. And that's what the Israelites would have understood. The Israelites reading this, they would have seen that bricks were used. But We see here that they needed to make something, so they made these bricks. And this very gift of intelligence that had been given to them from their creator is is being perverted to glorify their own name, to build up their own reputation. And so we may look at them, and you may be like me, and you might say, these people are so foolish. Are you serious? Like, you know... Like, you have heard of the wonderful stories of the Lord who has showed his saving hand to, your, to Noah. But then I have to think, well, 
all of us Christians here know also the saving power of the Lord. We actually know the Lord more intimately than they would have at this point in time. And how often do we look to others to acknowledge us as significant? How often do we seek our validation from our fellow man by offering up our gifts to them? This is often, uh, this is challenging for me, this question, because, again, I constantly wrestle with who am I promoting up here? My heart wants me to be promoted. Mike Palmer, I want to walk down these steps and go out to that door and, and have my hand shook and say, hey, great job, that was awesome, and I really want to feel validated and affirmed for a couple hours. But then I, I, have to cha- I have to look at myself and I have to say, who, who am I promoting? Am I up here preaching Christ, the only one who is the hope for the souls sitting in these seats in the, in the whole world, the only one who can bring salvation and who can rescue us? Am I content with giving the credit to Christ when I feel like I have given a good sermon and when it's okay, then I'll say, no, the Lord really helped me out there. Um, so, or am I content with giving him the credit? That's the same question that we all need to wrestle with. How do you feel when others take credit for your work? You see, this, the world that we live in teaches us to build up these monuments to ourselves, right? I mean, just think about it. We, it could take the form of maybe social media where I'm posting all these wonderful things that I am doing so that others will comment or like and I'll be able to feel affirmed and feel validated. It might take the form of, of serving others because I want to be remembered as others as the one who is caring and the one who is always there. Or it could also take the, the form of working hard because I want to be remembered as the best fill in the blank. And again, these things aren't bad things to desire. These aren't bad gifts. But sin perverts our gifts and starts to twist them and use them to seek our own glory rather than the glory of the Lord. And we see that here, that out of the desire for significance that these descendants of Noah um, wanted, they were serving something that could never give them that blessing that they desired. They were serving bricks and stone. And so for us, the question is, what is the motivation that I, uh, behind me using my gifts? Whose name am I looking to see built up and glorified? And we must remember that we must run to Jesus Christ in repentance when we find ourselves using our gifts or, or with that heart set of glorifying myself. We must know that he will be the one who will set our hearts right and uh, and we will be reminded that the proper motivation for using such gifts would be stem from the fact that God counts us as significant that God lavishes his love upon us he has redeemed us from that corruption which leads to death to be his friend forever that is good news And he has given us our gifts so that we might minister to others so that they might get to see and taste that the Lord is good through the way that we represent Christ. And so not only did these people not fear the Lord, but they feared what they would have to go through in order for his purposes to be accomplished, for his redemptive plan to go forward. And so 
Again, this leads to my next point, that because our God is committed to our redemption, we must trust in his wise plan, even in the midst of our fear. You see, the reason why they were desiring to build a city was, again, in verse 4, we see that they were um, afraid of being dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And this is a problem, and the reason why it is, is because twice in history, up to this point, the Lord has given the command to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. First, in Genesis 1.28, this is given to Adam, where he says those exact words, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then after the fall, after the flood, he gives these the same command to Noah in Genesis 9-7 where he says, Be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly upon the earth. We see that this command is actually intertwined in our being. It is intertwined in, in being um, created in God's image. You see, we are meant to reflect his image to the world by ruling over it as benevolent kings, as a kings or queens, as a um, commentator has said. This is God's uh, plan of blessing for the whole earth. It is his plan of blessing to bring into his kingdom people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. However, these people here, they have other plans. Right? The world can often be a scary place to live in ever since sin entered in. I mean, we lock our doors at night for this very reason. So we can empathize with these people who are going to be living in a plane and who fear um, actually having to continue to move out, fearing moving out into the unknown, moving away from maybe relatives and or friends. Their desire to remain where they feel comfortable, where they feel in control is not it's not unwarranted it actually makes sense given their situation but again we know we know that just because something doesn't uh, make sense doesn't mean that it's right doesn't mean that it's what we are supposed to do and so their fear we see has led them to seek security in the wrong place And so it is important that we would maybe take a step back and understand what a city represented at this time. And one of my professors was uh, told me this as I was studying this passage, and he said that it signified mankind's rebellion to God, their desire to live independently from him. He said that the one who lived in the city was one who looked to their technology to provide their security rather than the living God. And so that's why it's so important that in the next chapter, in chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of the city to be a wanderer. And we see that that signifies God, uh, Abraham's faith that the Lord would provide for him. Another thing that we it would be inter- uh, is important to understand is that how these bricks sort of worked in the ancient Near East. And so research has shown that these were sun-dried bricks. And in fact, while they seemed to be strong, whether there was some rain that would come or maybe a, a temperature change, these could easily crumble and fall apart. It is exactly these bricks that we see people putting their trust in. And so we would be mistaken today if we were to think that our technology is what is going to alone keep us safe and alone going to protect us. You start to see that 
when we start to fear the things of this world rather than the thing, uh, rather than the one who created the world, we ended, we put our trust in worldly things. But Scripture again reminds us that the the stone, the rock that we are to seek our security in is Christ. He is to be our refuge. And that when we seek Him and we cry out to Him in prayer, we cry out to Him in our fear, He graciously ministers to us. He reminds us of who He is, that He is committed to our good, and that we can trust Him. For as we read, He has shown that His steadfast love endures forever. And so we live in a time, though, where our technology has eliminated our need really to trust anybody. What I mean by this is all I have to do to find out any sort of information is just Google it, right? Type in anything I want. I don't know if what you are saying is true. Uh, it might be, but I'm going to go and find out for myself. I'm not going to trust your word. One way we can see this is, uh, is actually through the use of WebMD, right? Who trusts their doctor anymore when I can just type in my symptoms onto WebMD and find out that I only have a little bit longer to live no matter what is going on. Um, (laughs) So again, the internet is full of this information, but the one thing that it can't do is it can't tell us what is, uh, how to fix the broken world that we live in. Our technology cannot provide us with that answer. No matter how much research is done, I can still turn on the news and figure out and, and hear of some tragedy that has occurred today. And so we see that the God of the Bible is the only one who speaks hope into this dilemma. He is the one who originally created the world. He created it good. And he has proven throughout history that he is faithful and trustworthy and that he is working out a plan of redemption. So when our plans don't seem to work out, when they're not going the way we want them to, when we are being called out maybe of our comfort or complacency, when the worst thing that could happen to us does come to pass in our life, we must remember that God's faithful and his steadfast love endures forever. That he is in fact committed to us and he would not simply bring us somewhere to abandon us. But in fact, he has come to rescue us. Again, he has given this promise of a plan to bring us back into friendship with him. And, be, and he is committed to us even when we are faithless. And it is because that he is committed to our ultimate need, that is redemption, that we must trust in him even in the midst of our fear. And so far we have seen that misplacing our fear can lead to defiance of the Lord. It can uh, lead us to then also start seeking knowledge and security in our own uh, limited resources. And so we might ask the question as well, though, is, is there any grace that is found in this passage? For after all, God of the Bible is gracious. Where do I see that here? And so if you're out there and if you're wrestling with that question, is the God of the Bible a good God? I would hope that you would listen up at this point. And so I would argue and I would, that God's judgment or God's grace is seen in his judgment upon the people. I know that might be arresting, so please stick with me. Let me flesh this out. 
The goal of our Father's plan is to bring his people into their inheritance. What is that? Well, for the Israelites who are reading this, this would be the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to give to Abraham, a land that was flowing with milk and honey where God would dwell, he would live with his people. It would be a land of blessing. And in fact, this place was only a shadow of the, of the inheritance that all of us in here are um, desiring after, right? All of us have promised to us, and that is to dwell with our God face to face in heaven, in the fullness of his kingdom, where again, there is no more pain, there's no more tears, no more feelings of unworthiness. You see, life is only found in this kingdom of God, not in the kingdoms of man that we built up. And so, that's why we see the Lord's grace in his judgment. And so, that's my third point, though, is because God is committed to our redemption, we must go out into the world with the kingdom. And so, if you would look with me to verse 6, we're going to read this together. In verse 6, again, it says, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So we see that there are some similarities here that we can pick up on with what what Moses wrote previously. The Lord says that at this time, one of the problems is the fact that they all had one language and the same people. This is, at this time in history, a problem. But the next thing that God says as well is that this is only the beginning of of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And let's think about it. What what are they doing? They are building a city. They are building a community that is going to live deliberately in defiance to God. So the only thing that can come out of that is pain, suffering, and death. Those are the only things that are guaranteed because God himself is life. So if you're living in defiance of life, then... The only other way you can go is towards death. And so again, this is to reveal how deep our depravity is, how deeply messed up we are. And the fact is, though, that this should warrant another flood episode, if we think about it. It's the height of human rebellion to God post-flood. But the Lord acts differently here. The Lord comes down He doesn't stay up in heaven. He comes down and he confuses the language of man. And he spreads them out over the earth. And this is out of his grace for a couple reasons. As I said earlier, this should warrant another flood episode because this is uncontrollable evil that would be able to to come forth and, and to prosper. So, again, the Lord should be, should flood the earth. But if we remember... God had made a covenant or a loyal promise with Noah saying that I would never do that again. I will never flood the earth. Therefore, we see that the Lord is faithful to his promise because he does, in fact, act differently. The second reason is that God does not have to act at all, right? He could have wiped his hands of man at this point. He said, I am done. But he actually, he couldn't do that really Either because he had given a promise to Eve that from her seed would come one who would crush the head of the serpent, who would um, bring an end to death and to sin. So actually, 
we get to see here that God is faithful. Right? Remember that these people, they did not repent of their sin and their wrongdoing, but because God needed to accomplish his plan, he acted. While they were seeking to uh, have a plan of rebellion, God came to establish his plan of redemption. Again, without this gracious intervention, all would be lost at this point. The promise that he had made to Noah and the promise that he had made to Eve would have been broken and God would not be seen as faithful. And so it is only through this miraculous intervention that the people are able to follow the commands of God to spread out, right? If God does not scatter his people, then his plan does not go forth. If he does not go with the Israelites into the land of Canaan, they will not receive their inheritance of the land and he would not dwell in their midst. And then if God in the person of Jesus Christ had not come down from heaven and entered into history, entered into our pain, he would have never defeated sin and we would never be able to be gathered into the kingdom, never get to dwell with the Lord face to face. And so you see it is Jesus who is the one who came not seeking his own glory, but the glory of his father. And it is Jesus who went in his fear to his father in the garden of Gethsemane and prayed and trusted in his father's will. It is Jesus Christ who has been faithful on our behalf, securing our redemption and ensuring that we will one day enter into the fullness of God's kingdom where we will dwell face to face with our God in eternal happiness. And he did this by dying on the cross in our place. And then again, after his resurrection and his ascension, he sends forth the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now lives within us, making us new, leading us in the way of the Lord. Again, this is good and wonderful news. This is what must lead us to live thankful lives. And again, we might ask the question, though, of what does that look like? What does a thankful life look like? How am I to then share the gospel in this day and age? Well, if we think about today, it's, it's similar to that at Babel, right? We see people who are putting their trust in their technology. They're trusting their technology to be their significance and their security and their, and their pleasure, you know, we are even sold the lie that this, while our technology is good, that it's supposed to make us more connected with one another, whether that's through social media or through other means of using technology. But really, we see that this continues to foster a, a further separation from one another. We start to see people more of an, as an impersonal online presence or an impersonal presence on the TV screen rather than a unique person who is made in the image of God. And not one who is just made in the image of God, but one who has been ravaged by sin and its devastating effects. And when, when that happens... We easily use, our, it becomes easy to flippantly use our words to continue to dehumanize those who we don't necessarily agree with. And all we have to do today is look at the political atmosphere and we see that this is playing out before our eyes. 
And again, whether we know it or not, because politics is so ingrained in our culture, we are affected by this. It is the sin without that also affects us. And so, whether we believe it or not, we start to put forth our fake self and we start to seek to become more like this fake self that we portray online or the right person that's going to fit in the proper party categories. And that's actually imprisoning, right? Because you see, as Christians, we have been free to be made who God has made us to be. Not who the culture says that we need to be. Again, we are fully loved by our Father, the Creator, and the Holy Spirit is making us more and more like Jesus Christ. And so, when we embrace this truth, when we remember this, we are then able to treat humans as made in the image of God, not an enemy that needs to be conquered, but a a sin-ravaged human who needs salvation just as much as I do. And so, again, one of the ways that I think and I'm convinced that um, is the, it, we can show and we can bring the kingdom to people is through inviting them into our homes. This gospel hospitality is one way that we can bring people into contact with the kingdom. It, it fosters one thing that technology cannot, and that is intimacy. And we've been created for Intimacy. You see, again, we talked, our, our culture is more, growing more and more polarized. It's not, that's not a surprise, but we see that conversations are starting to change and become more like shouting matches, whether they are online or in person. And so it's easy when that starts to happen to begin to assume the worst of someone. When we don't know others and when others don't know us, that's what happens. And so, in order to combat this caricature that is being um, drawn up of of who a Christian is, by inviting people into our homes, our our co-workers, our neighbors, even those who are in this um, congregation, we begin to seek to know one another. We begin to seek to break down that dividing wall that is in our hearts that keeps us separated, that keeps us from being known and, and knowing one another. And again, this is, this is hard. Because when we start to be known by others, that, that means that they can hurt. And maybe also we find out really how broken we are. And that's scary to figure out, to discover. But again, we must remember that Jesus Christ is the one who comforts us. He is the one who knows the depths of our brokenness. And he is the one who has chosen to love us anyway. And he has called us to bring his kingdom to a broken and a hurting world. So I think that if if we desire to see the church in America grow, this is one thing that, that must start to be taken seriously. Because as Christians, we have this wonderful ability and opportunity to communicate the love of Christ to one another, to those who are also non-believers. We get to give them a glimpse of the loving kindness of our Heavenly Father. And so just by giving this invitation to maybe have a cup of coffee or have a meal at our table, we are communicating this desire to treat the, whoever it is that we are inviting with love and with dignity, the way Jesus has treated us. And so, 
again, let us also remember that Jesus is the one who invites us into his house. He invites us to eat at his table. He prompts us to come. And he does not wait for us to make the first move, right? He is the active one because if he does not graciously intervene, then we would never come at all. And so what we see, again, from this passage is that the sprinkling of God's judgment at Babel to the fullness of his wrath poured out on Jesus Christ. Our mighty God is um, working his plan of redemption to bring those who are broken, those who are unworthy, into his house, into his kingdom. He is committed to our redemption. Let us take the time to reflect upon this wonderful truth. Let us use our gifts for his glory. Let's trust in his wise plan in the midst of our fear. But let's go out into the world bringing the kingdom, inviting people into our homes to experience the love of Christ that we know. Because again, God is the one who lavishes his changing love upon the broken and the unworthy. And it is at his table where he treats everyone as worthy. And so with that, let's, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are committed to our redemption. You are committed to bringing us into your presence. Father God, that is such good news. And as we look out in the world, we know there are those who are struggling and who are hurting. Those who need to know the gospel. Father, please stir us up to live thankful lives that reflect your goodness and your mercy to us whether that's through using our gifts properly, whether that's trusting you in the midst of our plan or going out and bringing the kingdom, spreading out over the world, inviting people into our homes, that we may shower them with your love that you have showered upon us. Father, thank you that you are mindful and that you are at work in our lives and in our hearts and in your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.